0: Hi, I'm Rabbi Karen Aviv, and the last thing I prayed for was a good burger.
1: Eighteenth times the charm, babe. You
0: know
1: what I'm saying? Like, Sometimes you just got to persist and then the computer will do its thing. Here we go.
2: Finally so, recording. Both of us at finally the same recording, time. It's a beautiful take, thing.
1: Take 96. Um, anyway, hi.
2: Hello. We had a very interesting guest, Rabbi Karen Aviv. Couldn't have come at a better time. She talked to us about Israel and Palestine. The interview pretty much speaks for itself. If you want to know our personal thoughts on what's going on, let us know. Contact us. We'd love to talk about it one-on-one.
1: Or in a group setting. Or in a if group you want to setting. do a group Zoom to talk about our feelings, we are here. Mm-hmm. DM us. Email us. prayfrespot at gmail.com. We are always willing to connect with our peers and family and friends mm-hmm. about anything, especially in these troubling time if there's anything
2: i've learned these past two weeks it's that it's important to have real conversations and do the work on your own and not just look at social media and post and repost and like and comment i don't think that's gonna like teach anyone that much change their mind or make them feel better so reach out to us if you want to
1: god bless amen shalom Mm -hmm. and on that note we have a little fun segment that we're going to do that we just created called now live laugh, laugh love I am. I am. <laughs> Okay, good, that good, love. Perfect. The energy very in sync with one another. So yeah, it live laugh with time is. Oh my god, Arthur is being fucking crazy right now. But um, live laugh with time, where we say one thing that either made us happy this week, gave us life this week. Or as we're coming out of this crazy fucking time of the COVID-19 pandemic. One thing
2: that,
1: you know, made us feel normal again. So, Liv Lach bechayim, Jessica, what's your moment? My
2: moment is booking travel. I realized that getting out of my house, getting out of the city that I live in, and being able to see new places or familiar places and be with my family and friends is like... The key to happiness for me, and I'm finally able to do that again. I I have a bunch of travel plans booked for the summer, and I'm so. Where excited. are you going?
1: Quickly, quickly run me down. Where are we going this summer? We're going to San Diego. We're going to Chicago.
2: Same. We're going to Portland. We're going to San Not Francisco. Same. We're a road same. trip. Oh, we should. Coordinate. When are you going to San Fran? I'm going after Fourth of July. I'm going to do a road trip from Portland back down to LA
1: with Mark. With Mark. With my boyfriend. Marky Mark. Oh, I wish my boyfriend's name was Mark so badly. But really? Not, well, yeah. maybe Jack could
2: legally change his name.
1: I'll ask.
2: Mm-hmm. Let me know what he says. What is your live, laugh, L'Chaim moment?
1: Um, My live, laugh, L'Chaim moment was... So over this past weekend, I went out, like out, out for the first time in a very long time. I went to a few bars in Santa Monica. I ate bar food. I mm-hmm. took an Uber which was crazy. So honestly, my live left time moment was getting into an Uber and not having the anxiety of being like, "Oh, I'm gonna get COVID and have a really hard respiratory time." Yeah, have a hard respiratory time. Or I don't want to say, say die because I know I would die. Yeah. It, so yeah, I think the little things like for me, I also we also got free shots at the bar for taking a picture at the bar and posting it. So like. Between the Uber and the free shots, live, laugh, and find. They
2: should give free shots, but the shots are vaccines. Shots for shots. If you haven't gotten vaccinated yet, there's no reason to delay. What are you waiting for? We are living proof (laughs) that getting the vaccine only makes your life better.
1: I will say Uber prices are at an all-time high, though, because unemployment is at an all-time high, Mm -hmm. like the payments. So I think a lot of drivers have not gone back to working I did. We did spend about seventy dollars to get from
2: oh my god Santa
1: Monica back to my apartment, which is not that oh, far. two miles away. Oh, Jesus. So listen, be careful with your finances. It's going to be a crazy time coming out it of this is. thing. I, I see you've already booked a lot of travel. I've done the same. Just gotta budget, budget, be save,
2: be strategic, invest in yourself.
1: <laughs> okay, live
2: laugh am. and live laugh love. I'll just say it. we just get it out there. Okay. We love love. Enjoy the episode.
1: Hey there, we're JC and this is my co-host Jessica. Uh Uh-huh. And this is Pray For Us. It's a podcast about practicing an ancient religion in the modern day. We're talking about how we observe Judaism and other religions when it comes to holidays, relationships, food, and everything in between. Today we're talking to Rabbi. <clears throat> we're talking to <laughs> Rabbi Karen Aviv. Rabbi Karen is the rabbinic and education director at Judaism Your Way. Rabbi Karen has written three books, including Queer Jews, New Jews, The End of the Jewish. I can never say this for you Diaspora. guys. Diaspora. Diaspora. See Jessica, you <laughs> should have done this one. And American Queer now and then. She also has her PhD in sociology and anthropology, so she is much smarter than me and Jessica. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast, Rabbi Karen. Thank you so much for being here. I'm super
2: excited. Welcome.
1: Thank you for having me. Of course, I'd like to have you. Okay, we always
2: ask whenever we have a rabbi on the pod. Do you like to go by? Rabbi, Rabbi Karen or just Karen or maybe something else entirely.
0: It's an awesome question. I don't give a shit. Um you can call <laughs> me Karen.
1: <laughs> yes, <laughs> Karen.
2: I
0: don't care. Um I know a lot of my feminist colleagues are super hung up about you know, rabbi last name because they're not taking mm. this seriously and they experience so much sexism in the profession. I know that I have authority and I don't need to like wave it around. It's You can call me Karen. It's all good. (laughs) Okay,
1: cool. Love that. (laughs) Piggyback question off of that. When they choose to go by rabbi last name, are these rabbis oftentimes married? And if so, have they taken their husband's last name or do they keep their birth-given last
0: name. Oh, that's so interesting. I don't know. Some of my colleagues are not married. They're openly queer. And so Mm -hmm. they're not interested in taking anybody's last name.
1: I should have said partner. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's okay. It's totally fine. Some of them tend to be younger. And so Mm -hmm. they get a lot of ageism and sexism um, of like, you look too young to be a rabbi. And (sighs) that's annoying. And so they really want to be taken seriously, just as seriously as their male colleagues who never get comments about their appearance or what, like what dress they're wearing or my colleague, me and my colleagues are super duper scrutinized in very gendered ways. That's irritating about our appearance and about our age and our hair. And so if, if people are feeling like frustrated about that, it's, it's a good way to say, take me seriously. I have gravitas, treat me as you would any guy who has the title yeah. rabbi. So, and I totally get it. And I came to become a rabbi like later as a second career. And so I just spent, you know, two decades as Professor Karen or Karen. And I kind of just don't care about titles. I just think they're, it, it reflects status anxiety. And absolutely, mm-hmm. I just don't care. So true. I don't care. Call me what you want.
2: Okay, love <laughs> that. Yeah. love Within that. reason. <laughs> <laughs> where are you currently and where are you from?
0: I live in Denver, Colorado, and I'm from the Gilded, Ghetto of Highland Park, Illinois, which was like <laughs> filled with Schwartzes and Rosenstein, and um, <laughs> it's quite nice over there. <laughs> yeah, so the Greater Chicagoland area, and I've been in Denver since who, uh, two thousand three. So it's the longest I've ever lived as an adult. But I was like wow. in New York, and I was in Israel before that, and back in Chicago. So, in San Francisco okay. for a while. Yeah, so. So I live in Denver and I love it.
2: Oh, I love Denver so much. Do you? I've, I've never been. A, mm-hmm. Why do you love Denver? You would like it, Jason.
0: Oh my God, you would love it. Such a good quality of life.
2: Exactly. I feel like everyone lives such a balanced life. It's so beautiful. And you have access to the outdoors. I mean, you have that in LA where we live, but you can go skiing on the weekends. You could go kayaking. You can go camping and like, I think the The wildlife and the nature in Colorado just like takes my breath away. So it's
0: amazing. Ugh, I love it. Yeah, you're 20 minutes from Red Rocks in the foothills in Denver. And so it's super beautiful. And also yeah, people yeah. just live in fleece. And yoga pants, and it's honestly sounds
1: amazing. It's so I great. do that anyway. Like that's literally what I'm in, right? I, right. Yeah, I mentally mean, well, I mean, I'm in
0: Denver pandemic. But like, if you live in L. A., my parents lived in L. A. for 25 years, so I spent a lot of time oh, wow. visiting oh, them, wow. like in Santa Monica. I did. That's I we're like, both hey, there. Oh my gosh, yeah. That's so great. Oh yeah. So yeah, and when I came back from living in Israel, I lived with my parents for a summer to debate like do i want to be in LA do i want to be in San Francisco and i spent 3 months in LA and i was like i don't think i can live here i don't know how people meet each other and i'm always in my car and people are obsessed about what they look like and i just don't care and and then i interviewed at a job in San Francisco and i was like
1: oh
0: This This is is better. This is the promised land for gay Jews. So I'm For sure. I'm totally... And yeah, so
1: I lived in San Francisco (laughs) for a couple of years.
0: So I feel your pain. And I think LA is a hard place to live. Yeah, it's tough.
1: Yeah. I don't think... I mean, I can't speak for Jessica, but I definitely wouldn't live here if it weren't for me pursuing a career in the entertainment business. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And... You know, over the pandemic, I got to spend time in New York, Utah, St. Louis, mm-hmm. Atlanta, North Carolina, like all via driving and everywhere else was so much more pleasant to be, to be perfectly
0: yeah. <laughs> honest. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I spend very little time in my car here, which is awesome.
2: So we wanted you to explain a little bit about what Judaism Your Way is and what you do for work. Can you kind of break that down for us? Yeah.
0: Yeah. So we're what we call ourselves is an open tent where anybody who's seeking Jewish connection can find it. And we are super inclusive of people in interfaith and mixed heritage relationships. We're welcoming, obviously, to queer Jews. Like our executive director is queer, and he did not grow up Jewish. And I'm obviously a big les. And um, <laughs> so, so LGBTQ people and people of color. Like we, we were started by a couple who could not find a rabbi to marry them. This was a while ago um, in, in the mm-hmm. state of Colorado because they were a mixed heritage couple. One person was Jewish, and the other person had been raised. I think Lutheran, but I'm not sure. And wow. back in the day, they were considered uh, pariahs, and they felt like this is wrong. It's, this this is a way to alienate people and to lose participation in the Jewish community. And so we want to create kind of a central, like uh, a city hall for people who who want to connect Jewishly and have heard a lot of no elsewhere mm-hmm. for whatever reason. And so so that's our origin story. And now. Who we are is like, it's sort of 2.0 version of the organization. Before we were really like, come to us and we can support you and without guilt and without membership dues, and we don't have a building and, and, you know, we will accompany you whenever you need something Jewish and we'll help you um, figure out how you can say yes to Judaism in a way that has like spiritual integrity and feels authentic to you. And so that's what we call our Torah of inclusion philosophy of like, we help people say yes when they've heard a lot of no. And a lot of Jews carry around, I think, like a big backpack full of Jewish shame and embarrassment. Like, I don't know anything or I'm a bad Jew because I like bacon wrapped dates Mm -hmm. and, you know, like all sorts of stuff, which I have started to realize, oh, that's just like internalized anti-Semitism that, that we have taken in about like all the shame about being Jewish. And so that was our first iteration of like helping people heal from the baggage that they carry about being and doing Jewish. And now, and we still, that's our bedrock, like that's our foundation. And now we're starting to become a community where we're offering more like Shabbat stuff and, um, a longer kind of time frame to be involved in a, a program where people develop relationships with one another. Like we create that container to help people connect to one another, but we're not driving the relationship. And that feels more like a community um, that people want to participate in because it feels good and because they feel seen and affirmed, not out of like not because it's like the right thing to do and is l- loaded with like obligation yeah, um, or resentment or shame.
1: I love that. I love that too. Um, would you say that, oh, well, I don't want you to generalize your community by any means, but uh, you know, the majority of people that find you guys, are they usually people who grew up Jewish or people who are like looking to explore something new? Also, like in terms of reform or not? Like what, what have you seen? A reconstructionist? Yeah. Yeah.
0: So it's yes to both of those things. Like some of the people who find us grew up Jewish and for whatever reason, like they have spiritual questions about like deep questions about life and existence and like, what am I doing on the planet? And what's important to me? And when they were growing up Jewishly in whatever denomination, it could be orthodoxy. It could be the conservative movement. Could be reform or recon, whatever. They didn't get good answers or they didn't know what questions to ask. To me, that is a product of like the 20th century effort to become white people in the United States and to forget our rich treasure box of Jewish awesomeness and like texts and stories and practices. And like, I think Judaism is the bomb and has so much mm-hmm. to offer us and I mean, I'm just thinking like my own family story. My grandpa like fled Poland, lived in Mexico City until he was like in his 20s, came here, changed his name from Josef Label Itzkowitz to George Lewis. And he mm. wanted to become white so fast and like didn't want to have anything to do with Judaism or the Jewish community. And he's like ordinary. That just described millions of Jews in the 20th century. And like didn't give his daughters much Jewish education. And so, you know, a lot of people mid-century and like next generation, like baby boomers grew up not really knowing anything about Judaism or the Judaism they grew up with was shame-based or Mm -hmm. like the level of Jewish literacy in this country to me is a reflection of the effort to become white. We just don't know. We don't know how awesome our heritage is. And that's not bad. It's just like, it's just a condition of the project of assimilation.
2: It's interesting because my grandfather told me that when his parents came over from Russia, they changed their last name from Dolinsky to Dolin, which isn't that different. Mm-hmm. And they took a lot. I think that my, my grandfather and my dad both grew up very conservative and identify as Jewish, but I always was like, why did we change our last name? Like, I don't understand. I feel like it's almost like diluting our family tree or something. He was like, we just wanted to be as Americanized as possible. And we wanted to make that happen as quickly as possible. And changing your name is the easiest way to do that, I think.
0: Right. And if you have white skin, you can pass, you know, like Mm -hmm. Ralph Lauren was
1: Ralph Lefkowitz um so (laughs) ralph lauren's daughter dylan lauren went to my sleepaway camp camp Tawanda. shout Uh, out to that (laughs) how's that for jewish that's amazing
0: we can (laughs) like if we're white we can dye our hair we can get a nose job we can do all these things that really are based on jewish shame or fear around difference and being perceived Mm -hmm. as different and we can pass and there's You know, there's great benefits. Look at like how wealthy the Jewish community is on on average. And, you know, we have some form of political power and we're highly, you know, successful in lots of fields. That's all the like bennies of becoming white and being beneficiaries of our system. You can tell I have like a racial justice obsession. Um, (laughs) But there's huge costs, which is like Jewish illiteracy and real Mm -hmm. like floundering For meaning and and purpose and community. And so like, we are a place where people can explore both hurts and the opportunities in a way that's non-judgy and compassionate and open-ended. You know, like what I always say to people when they come in my office and they're like, I'm a bad Jew. I'm like, you're great the way you are. And I have no interest in changing you. And Mm -hmm. what are some questions you want to talk about? So that I can walk with you to help you find answers that really resonate for you. So, so that's that's like our mission and philosophy. Um, I forgot the other question. What was the other question you had?
1: <laughs> I feel like you answered it. <laughs> I feel like you answered it too. <laughs> okay, great, great. <laughs> I do that's think fine. it's it's super fascinating, and I think about this multiple times every day. Um, how you know it's can conv- it. Jews are white when it's convenient for other people and we're not white when it's convenient for other people. I sound like a moron the way I just said that, mm-hmm. but you no, know,
0: it's super you know smart. exactly super what I'm
1: talking about. And yeah. I just it's something that I battle with every day because I mean, I, I simply can't put it into words because I know that I'm white, but at the same time, I know that the Jewish people as a whole have been you know, both oppress and been the oppressor. And it's just something mm-hmm. that's it's such a battlefield in, I think, a lot of our brains. And it's just, yeah. like, difficult to reckon with mm-hmm. a lot of the time.
0: What you're talking about is code switching. Yeah. So the mm-hmm. way we talk um, and the way we behave in a room full of people who are not Jewish might be completely different than when we're in a room full of Jews. And that is code mm-hmm. switching. And
1: absolutely, that
0: mm-hmm. is... That is about assimilation and belonging, and also I think at the heart of it, this is where I think people of color and Jews have like shared experiences. I think deep down we don't want to feel afraid, and um, that we'll be rejected or we'll be harmed. That's that's Jewish trauma right there. Yeah, it's absolutely
1: um, fear based. Like, yeah, ap- yeah,
0: yeah. I want to recommend a website that um, just was published like a year ago. Yeah, it was last March. It was right during the shutdown. And it's called transcending jewishtrauma.com. Oh, I've okay. seen, yes. Have you seen okay. the map? It's, I
1: have. It's
0: freaking amazing. Wait, what amazing. is the map? So there's this map that the co-authors created of like, of all the patterns that we exhibit as Jews around fear about our safety and exclusion or inclusion And all of the shame that we carry. So it's like, I have to be totally in control or I have to like reject other people because I don't feel safe and secure. I feel totally like I'm a bad Jew because I don't know anything. And Mm -hmm. it, it just has this really incredibly concise and accurate mapping of all the ways that we have been harmed as Jewish people and that we have turned that on ourselves. It's like mm-hmm. you could do a similar map for internalized sexism and internalized racism right. for sure, mm-hmm. and how it shows up in our behavior and our patterns and our thoughts yeah. and our feelings. First time I saw that map, I cried. I just thought, oh my God, I have been needing this for years. I'm going to use this
2: all the time in my work with people. I can't wait to
0: look Jessica, at we'll it.
1: Jessica, we'll post it yeah. when we post this. Yeah, episode. for
2: sure. It's interesting that you were talking about code switching because. I always felt like, yes, I can sort of change the way that I speak or the tone of my voice or the way that I act or dress around certain people. But I'm white. I'm also Jewish. So I was like, I don't really know if that applies to me. But I was thinking about last weekend when my sisters and I had our boyfriends over for Shabbat and they're not or for dinner and they're not. Shabbat is Shabbat, right, 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 right. It was Friday. (laughs) And my boyfriend and my sister's boyfriend are both Christian or they're born Christian. And we had a challah. I put out the the candles, which could have been Shabbat candles or could have just been two pillar candles, (laughs) depending on how you want to look at it. And we were running a little late for a dinner, as Jews often do. We sat down and I said, Oh, should we say the blessing? My sister was like, Oh, no, let's just light the candles. Let's eat. And I was like, Okay. And I didn't really like fight for it, but I was like, Let's just say like the mozi. Like we're right here. Like we know the words. But, we know where do you have to be that you're in a
0: hurry? You know? <laughs> exactly.
2: And it, it was just like, there's so many little moments like that where you're sort of like at odds with yourself. Yeah. About like, how Jewish do I want to be right now? Do I want to express my Judaism or even feel like I'm imposing my religion on someone else? Yeah. And I, I do think that's like a daily battle. I totally I, it's agree. And that's really challenging.
0: Yeah. I, what I always say is that I work at this really interesting and painful intersection one one direction is jewish ambivalence like this ambivalence about expressing anything jewish the other one is distress of like i have this unresolved hurts or like i'm wrestling with something in judaism it's often like post-traumatic god disorder so ambivalence (laughs) distress and then there's confusion of like what do i do Or what's important to me, I I really don't know. And then the other intersection is alienation. And so like standing in the middle of that intersection, I sort of, I listen to folks, they tell me their stories and I can hear where they are, you know, in that map Mm -hmm. uh, of like, what's the most present for them. Often it's distress because they've heard Mm -hmm. that they're bad. And, you know, like to be a non-anxious, compassionate presence for people And, and to say like, you're great the way you are and Mm -hmm. what do you want to look at? What do you want to explore? What are you curious about is a step towards like healing the stuff that people carry that is mostly invisible to the rest of the world. So I hear you on that moment of like wanting, (laughs) and then somebody else is like, no, 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 we're in a hurry. That often happens with Passover Seder too. And of like, let's just get through the Seder. And I'm like, (laughs) why? It's so awesome. Like, let's talk about like oppression and liberation. Like this has Mm. resonance for us today. Why would we rush it? Like,
1: I think, I mean, to both of your points, definitely anxiety is a humongous part of it, especially if you're welcoming guests of either another religion or someone who's like technically less, Jewish than you in that they didn't grow up practicing the blessings or what have you. Yeah. You don't want to not necessarily push your Judaism onto someone else. But, you know, if I think of Catholicism and I think of someone trying to tell me like, oh, that's the blood of Christ, like I would be a little bit uncomfortable and I would never want to put that on someone else, Mm -hmm. even though, Mm -hmm. I mean, to me, Judaism is quite different and less shame based in its actual practice practice mm-hmm. but it is it's something about that that just like brings on anxiety as a Jew when you're with people who might see things differently than you
0: we're so busy mm-hmm. judging ourselves yes and we're fearful of people judging us as like mm-hmm. oh my god yeah. you're religious like people often ask me like are you are you religious I'm like I don't know what that means <laughs> um, I mean do I do a lot of Jewish practices? Yeah. Do I also practice yoga and meditation? Yeah. Am I religious in terms of yoga and meditation? I don't, like, it doesn't matter. Who cares? Like, why why get hung up on that? Do I feel spiritual? Hells yeah. Like, you know, I can remind myself that I'm connected to something much, much bigger than myself. It's available to me whenever I want because I've developed that kind of spiritual muscle of just taking Mm -hmm. a breath. And, like, closing my eyes and imagining, like, standing before the Grand Canyon or, like, somewhere in the mountains in Colorado, like, Estes Park, where Rocky Mountain National Park is located, is, like, my happy place. And all I have to do is, like, call up that memory of standing in front of a 14er and feeling, like, this awe about nature. Okay, then I'm there. If that's religious, okay. Okay.
1: Like, then yeah, hell
0: yeah. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Is that like, are you spiritual or religious? To me, it has no, like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter.
2: Oh, sure. I love that. Me too. Just to clarify for people who aren't familiar, a fourteener is oh. a really big mountain, basically. <laughs>
1: right. I actually feet. was going to ask, and then I was like, I've <laughs> <Yeah>. already <laughs> said no, 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 enough. No. So. It's all good. Yeah. Thank you, <laughs>
0: thank you, Jessica. Because I, yeah, it's a Colorado thing.
2: <laughs> I just learned what it was because my friend who lives in Denver used that. I was like, "What is that?" Yeah, it's I was really, like, "Is that a tree?" <laughs> a really tall, tall mountain with a lot of snow. So, okay, thank you. We wanted to ask you. We have had a lot of queer guests on this show, mm-hmm. and we've touched on their relationship with Judaism and sort of what Judaism says about homosexuality. But we haven't gotten like an expert, actual, like definite answer. I don't even know. <laughs> is there a definite answer about what the Torah says about that, or what this Judaism's Stance on homosexuality is, or Mm -hmm. what can you tell us?
0: Yeah, Uh, I've been thinking about this for a lot of years. This past weekend, or two weekends ago, was this celebration of like the 20th anniversary of queer Jews, like the publication of the book that I co edited with David Schneer, who sadly died in November of brain Mm -hmm. cancer. We put that book together 20 years ago because there had been two books about Judaism and being queer that had come out in the, in the eighties and the nineties. Um, no, it was in the eighties. one was called the tribe of Dina, which is, was about like Jewish dykes and sorry, Jewish women <laughs> who love women. And, um, and then the other book came out in like 1987 and it was called twice blessed. It was an awesome anthology. And it was about like rejecting this idea that you have to be like, to use Audrey and Rich's term, split at the root of like being queer and being Jewish were incompatible with one another. And this was saying, no, it's actually, it's twice the amount of blessing. Such a good book. It was so helpful for me when I was like coming out in the mid 90s and really confused because I had thought like orthodoxy would cure me of like my being gay. And so I was living in Israel. Oh my God, being out in Jerusalem in like the late 90s was not fun. So I came back, after writing my dissertation to the States. And I just wanted to be about, around gay people and preferably gay Jews to like heal from that really difficult experience. And, um, oh my gosh, there was a gay synagogue in LA and in San Francisco. Like, it was amazing. And- Who did we talk to that goes
1: to- The gay talent? Oh, it was H. Allen Scott. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. So like, I went there and I was like, oh my God, my people. And then I started to realize, oh, the last time a book came out, about like living inside these two identities, much like being white and Jewish, like you have to code switch all Mm -hmm. the time. The last time it had like a book like that had come out was 87 and it was now like 2000. So this is like 21 years ago. And so I proposed to my co-editor, David, I was like, we should totally put a book together um, because it's been over a decade since the last book came out. And he was like, cool. So, you know, we were both finishing up our dissertations and we put together this project. And then we went on a book tour around the country, talking with people and older queer people were like, how could you use that word queer in your book? That is a a slur. It's like the N word Mm. that was used against me on the playground. And I was beaten up for it. And I, I really like felt compassion because that was their internalized oppression speaking. Mm-hmm. So it was a good reminder of like how things change over decades and that their ex- my elders, like my ancestors experience of being gay and Jewish was fundamentally different from my own. And I wanted to like honor that and also not push back. That sounds confrontational, but like I wanted to say things can be different if we are completely out in all of our, multi-dimensionality. And so let's do that. Like, let's be integrated. Let's be unapologetically Jewish and unapologetically queer. And out of that book tour, we decided to start a national nonprofit called Jewish Mosaic to push for LGBTQ inclusion in Jewish communities. And we did like load of trainings with jCCs and Hillel and summer camps and federations and we did a lot of studies and we convened conferences to just educate straight jewish people about like we're here we're queer let's eat and it was a really interesting time to be doing that work because it was just when the movement for marriage equality was really gaining ground so I felt like we were in this amazing historical fight for justice. And then like in 2008, like Bernie Madoff like ruined the world and everything crashed. And so we <laughs> so we actually merged with Keshet, which is now like city hall for queer Jews. And they've been doing amazing work for over 20 years to really like mm. push the needle forward so that like being out in your synagogue is not a big thing anymore. And that there's like summer camp, like and Shabbaton opportunities for queer youth queer Jewish youth to like meet one another and come out like in middle school. Yeah. So I've just seen so much social change and, uh, it's the real reflection of like this grassroots effort to integrate, you know, both, both parts of ourselves. And as far as what Judaism says about being queer and Jewish, I mean, there's obviously the thing in Leviticus, Don't lie with another man as you would with a woman. It's an abomination. Mm. Many commentators have talked about how that is actually a reflection of the sexism of the writer of Leviticus. His name was P for priest. (laughs) And uh, because how men related to women in that era, like about 2,500 years ago when that book was written, it was about acquisition, like women were property, or it was about domination, And it was not about equality or respect or desire. And so that's not a relevant frame for us to understand gay men at all. Mm -hmm. And then the rabbis in the Talmud have like all sorts of interesting conversations about women who rub, which is uh, the term is misolelots. And that's not considered like a crime. And and also about the tumtum, which is an androgynous, what we would call now non-binary or Mm -hmm. trans person. That they were part of Jewish communities and that tomb that tombs should be treated with love and respect, just like any other member of the community.
1: I've never heard that term, me either. Yeah, yeah.
0: the tomb tomb. So if you go on Kesha's website, they have an awesome bibliography of books and websites. There's one called transtorah.org
2: amazing. We should put together like a little document of all of these links for people and we can post it on social media because a lot of this information is new to me. Yeah. And I'm sure it'd be helpful for people to know. Like, I think as with most things in Judaism, it sounds like it's open to interpretation. Exactly. And there's multiple perspectives.
0: Like there's no one right way to think about being queer and Jewish because people from different eras and different locations have been commenting on, you know, issues and categories that reflect their understanding in that historical era. And so, Mm -hmm. if you imagine, like, the Grand Canyon as a metaphor, that's how I like to think of Torah, there are all these layers of rocks that were formed over different centuries, like, billions of years. And we're the top layer on the rim. And we're adding our Mm. own layer of commentary based on like how things are evolving for us today. That perspective or those perspectives today, it's really different than it was 20 years ago and certainly different than 50 years ago or 150 years ago. So we get to be the next generation of builders and interpreters and shapers of Judaism, not just on like queer stuff, but on anything. Like anything in Judaism, we get to uh, interpret and and contribute to the ongoing conversation. And then also have disagreements with people because they have different perspectives. And all of these things can be held as true and as good within Judaism. Like that's the hallmark of Judaism. It's flexible. It's like a kaleidoscope. You know, it has multiple perspectives and colors and shapes and it's all good. Except when it's bad and people are like oppressive and terrible.
1: <laughs> totally, <laughs> totally. It's not good. When it's bad, it's bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When it's bad, it's really bad, you guys. Yeah. Since, since spending your time in Israel during that time in your life and having, um, you know, the obstacles and the struggles that you had over there, do you think that? Israel and the culture there has become more accepting as well? Or are you talking mainly about what you've seen here in the U.S.?
0: Good pivot to Israel. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So when I was living there, it was 98 through 2000. And the open house like LGBTQ center in Jerusalem was like just getting off the ground. There was definitely more of a scene in Tel Aviv, which is definitely more, you know, like secular and open and liberal and, but it was still hard. And so, I mean, pride in Tel Aviv is huge. And like, I I had the privilege of like teaching Israel, Palestine and Jewish studies in um, academia before I became a rabbi. And so I was doing a lot of research and I got to go to Israel like many times between 2000 and then when I left in 2013 to go to rabbi school. And so I saw like the culture evolve and become more open in many ways. But Israel feels like two different countries to me, frankly. Like Mm -hmm. there's like Tel Aviv and secular Israeli culture, which is like so close in certain ways to European queer culture. Oh, yeah. Um, Like Eurovision. Oh, my God. That was great. (laughs) so uh and Donna International won the Eurovision one year like and she's trans like it's amazing and then there's Jerusalem and like the sort of national religious and and then fundamentalist like ultra-Orthodox communities that are not just in Jerusalem but they're you know what 20-25 percent of the population and so you really have this like I hate to use this word, but cleavage uh, between <laughs> these two, these two different communities across Israel that shape people's experiences of being queer in like fundamentally different ways. So has it gotten better? Hell's yeah, in certain ways. But is it hard for people who might be Haredi, like ultra orthodox? Uh, oh, yeah. Yes. Oh
2: my god. Yeah. Super
0: tough. Super tough. Like you have to leave your whole community to be out. Like there's no twice blessed in that regard. Is It's really split at the root, I think, for ultra-Orthodox queer people in Israel. Less so here. I mean, there's a, actually an organization called Eschel that supports people who identify as Orthodox and queer and is like a community building organization to feel less alone. And they're doing interesting work in in Orthodox communities across North America to really like, push the envelope and have conversations and advocate with clergy to not harm queer people and reject them from the community. Mm -hmm. Super duper important work. So yeah, Israel's a different place than it was 20 years ago in certain ways. And then in other ways, you know, in a fundamentalist community, it's, it's exactly the same.
2: Something I've been thinking about a lot, and I'm sure you two can both relate, especially with everything going on in Israel and Palestine right now, is that Jews contain multitudes, and the same applies to Israelis. Yeah. And there is a lot of division and diversity of thought within the community. But what's frustrating is not everyone sees it that way. So Mm -hmm. they just want to put all Jews in a box, or they put all Israelis and Jews in a box, but they're not the same. Like, Mm -hmm. I had a friend call me yesterday and was like, what's going on in Israel? Like, you're Jewish. And I was like, I don't like... (laughs) first of all, like, yes, I'm Jewish. I'm American. I went to Israel once. And I I don't pay that close of attention to Israeli politics. Like, Mm -hmm. this is what I know based off of what I've read. And I think that can be really frustrating. And I don't know, like, what do you think? How can we sort of like improve our public image or make people understand that like, there's diversity within the community. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you even have, that's such a hard question to answer, but. No, I
0: think um, my my metaphor that I reach for is kaleidoscope. And that's actually Mm -hmm. how I taught, when I taught Israel-Palestine studies um, at University of Colorado, I actually took students on like a I think it was a three-week, yeah, it was a three-week global seminar. The title was Justice, Democracy, and Human Rights in Israel and Palestine. And we Mm use that metaphor of kaleidoscope a lot because you look through a kaleidoscope and it looks one way, and then you turn it and you see a completely different experience, like you perspective, shape, color, you turn it again. And a kaleidoscope, when you look through it, does not have like one color and one shape. It's like refract Mm -hmm. it's like fractal and so Mm -hmm. that's like what israel and palestine are to me that um you have so many competing perspectives so many different ideologies you know if you ever listen to if you ever listen to like israeli talk shows Like people are just yelling at each other. (laughs) It's so (laughs) combative and confrontational. I think it's a reflection of like, like accumulated PTSD of like, we're not safe. So we have to fight each other and we're fighting the Mm -hmm. Palestinians. And Mm -hmm. um, it's like cortisol inflammation all around. There's no one right way to understand Israel and Palestine. I encouraged my students like read Haaretz and then also read like the ultra Orthodox papers And read all of these different websites and listen to different news sources because that will help you understand the kaleidoscope. If you only read the Mm -hmm. New York Times, you're going to get one perspective. If you only Mm -hmm. read BBC or The Guardian, uh, you're going to have a completely different perspective. Read both, read all three so that, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's more time consuming and it requires like internal motivation to do that. Listen to Fox News, like even though I hate it, uh, yeah. Like it just helps you understand. It raises the question of what is this media source um, perspective? What's their bias? Mm-hmm. How are they representing? How are they framing? And I think that mm-hmm. that's something that you can do on any issue, like to be an informed global citizen.
1: Absolutely. And I mean, these past couple of days, like I have been doing exactly that. I've been reading Palestinian publications i've been reading israeli idf publications Mm -hmm. and the more that i read both sides the more the more i simply cannot understand how anyone is comfortable who is not affiliated with either side picking a side posting about it with an infographic that has minimal Mm -hmm. information and just being like yeah this is it like let's free palestine it's it so is, stupid. It's so stupid. <laughs> it's yeah. so, it is stupid. so <laughs> stupid. I don't stupid. even, it's it, like,
0: oh my God, I'm not going to swim in that sewer. I just won't.
1: It's like, what is yeah. the point? When you put something out there, mm-hmm. it, it, sh- it completely shows how fucking ignorant you are, for, for one. And second of all, if you have no knowledge of the, I mean, it's so extremely nuanced. To post something like Free Palestine or like Team Israel all the way, it's like, You were just alienating, what, your 700 followers? Like, who is this for? I just, I simply do not understand. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, how I often taught
0: ways to think about the conflict in its various manifestations is to think of a triangle, hero, victim, villain. And so, and you know, the paradox is that Palestinians and Israelis, feel victimized like they feel Mm -hmm. victimized and they project onto other groups um you know the villain category or they it's either you're a victim or you're a hero of your own narrative and you know the other side as if there's only one other side ridiculous Mm -hmm. and binary the other side is the villain and okay, uh, that's stupid and not true. And it's a distortion of the complexity of reality. And then you can also look, so you have one triangle, you can look at another triangle on top of it. So it makes like a star of David. And, um, <laughs> and one, one point on the triangle is an interrupter of that, that kind of binary thinking. Another is a bystander. And then another is an upstander of like you're holding up that narrative. And so where do you want to be? in that shit Mm -hmm. show, Um, I'm often like when it comes to social media, I am a bystander. I'm not going to change people's minds on social media. And and it's like a pointless waste of my time. So I just like ignore it because it's not worth my energy. It's not worth like getting my inflammation up in my physical body for that bullshit. So Mm -hmm. I just don't, but I do want to be an interrupter in the sense that I want to help people interrupt the kind of the rigidity of the narrative that they have chosen or the the rigidity of their own position. I want to interrupt that to hopefully expand people's consciousness to see this is much more complex than you might think. Right. That was my job as an educator. As a rabbi, like to be honest, I don't talk much about Israel and Palestine in my local community because the reality is, it's so incredibly divisive. And, mm-hmm. um, and because it's not, I mean, our mission is like the Torah of inclusion, expanding who can participate in Judaism, like the next iteration of Judaism, and like really making the argument, Judaism is available to any human being. Like it doesn't mm-hmm. matter what your category or your religion or your identity is. Loved ones who love us they are in that tent, Like they are included just as much as like the next person who might be Jewish. But Mm -hmm. how does that relate to Israel and Palestine? I I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't really. And so like there's a phrase that's coming to mind, yesh gvul, which means there's a limit to what I, in my position as rabbinic director of Judaism Your Way, what am I going to talk about in public? I'm actually choosing not to talk about Israel and Palestine. When I was a Mm -hmm. professor, I talked about it all the time. And wrote op-eds and like advocated, you know, a kaleidoscopic approach, but I'm not in that mm-hmm. role anymore. So it's, yeah. you know, I've checked on all my peeps by phone that I love in Israel and in Palestine, mm-hmm. you know, to see how are you? I'm thinking of you. How can I support you? Because they're scared. Mm-hmm. They're scared about their safety. And that's like a basic like survival thing. And mm-hmm. I want them to know that they're not alone. But am I going to do something in my professional role to speak out? Not right now. No. Yeah. So it's I, complicated. I that. Yeah, it's super complicated. Super complicated.
2: Something I was I, in my effort to like learn about what what's going on just by Googling, because we really didn't have like an education that much about like Israeli politics in Hebrew school. I went to public school. Mm-hmm. It was mostly just about like the biblical relevancy and like history. Yeah. And that's pretty much the extent of it. But I was reading an article on Vox and they were saying something to be mindful of is that we're often told this is so complicated. It's beyond comprehension. How could anyone understand this? And they were like, that's sort of like something, a a method that people use to try and make you not even go there, to not even do the research or to just make assumptions about either group. So I, I do think I wanted to just say like, it's important to be mindful of that mm-hmm. and to not be intimidated by it and really like, you know, take on the the research and find out for yourself. I, mm-hmm. I think that that's the most important thing you can do as a bystander.
0: Totally. I totally agree. When I taught in academia, you know, I, I had mostly college students who might be Jewish or who were like, and they, they learned very little about Israel because it's not on the Hebrew school curriculum. Mm-hmm. Or I had day school kids who had gotten like the Israel advocacy, Israel do or die. They had to do a lot of unlearning. And then I had like free mm-hmm. Palestine people in my classes and then just ordinary college students who were like, this fit my schedule. So I'm <laughs> taking it. And that it's, would a, be me. it's at three in the afternoon and I could show up high. So whatever, it's fine. <laughs> and so I had that gamut in my classroom and I was like, I'm not here to convince you a, that a particular perspective is right or wrong. I'm here to show you the range of perspectives. And that's the same approach that I would encourage anybody to take, whether you're Jewish or not, to really engage with multiple perspectives to recognize it is complex, but it's not so complex that you should just walk away. Mm-hmm. That's a
1: cop out. percent, yeah. And that's super responsible, too, as an educator. I mean, I grew up in New York my Hebrew school teachers and my my public school teachers. When we spoke about Israel and Palestine, it was always extremely one-sided until yeah. one day we had an assembly where a Jew who was a pro-Palestine activist came and spoke to us. And I remember people booing him. Like I vividly remember he was also like not to be so um, consumed and like with looks and shallow, but he was also like, very short, very overweight, very sweaty, like someone that you don't want to hear speak at you when you're in fifth grade for two hours. And I remember people were like, actually rude to him when he said he was a Jewish person who was pro Palestine. And I don't I mean, I, I that that's my only memory. I don't remember what he spoke about. But I that's wild. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And the fact that like they booed him and they didn't get called out by their teachers for bad behavior. Like, that's not a, a like mm-hmm. kind Jewish gesture. I That's know, not yeah. loving your neighbor as you want to be loved. Like knock it mm, off people. Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah. 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 Wow. Yeah. We have to hold each other accountable. I think.
0: Totally. In a kind and loving, compassionate way. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> yes.
2: Now I'm like looking at all of the other questions we had to ask you. And I'm like, okay, how do we transition back <laughs> to talking about like sexuality and like the fun parts of Judaism? Mm,
0: pleasure. It's all about pleasure. <laughs> Anyway. Do you keep kosher? Uh, tell me what kosher means to you.
2: Oh,
1: I mean, I don't <laughs> keep kosher. I have said many times, and I will say again on this podcast, pork is like my favorite food. Yeah. Um, I, I don't eat shrimp because I find it disgusting, not because sure. kosher Here, by any means. But.
0: Here's how I define kosher. Do I think about what I put in my mouth? Yes. Do I think about how it got from the ground or from being a live animal? To like arriving in a weird package in Trader Joe's, and then in my mouth. Yes, <laughs> I think about like the like you know pulling the curtain behind the production process. Do I think about how much workers were paid to pick the strawberries that I'm eating in my yogurt? Yes. Um, do I think about the choices that I make and how they have an impact on climate change? Yes. So am I? Do I keep kosher? I keep Echo roots. I keep Echo Kosher.
2: Oh, I like that. And it's ben.
0: a whole like thought, you know, like it's a field. If you if you go into Chazon's website, um, Chazon means vision. And it's like the environmental sustainability lab in the Jewish world. They have this whole section on echo kashrut. So yeah, I practice echo kashrut. But do, am I all about like the do's and don'ts? I mean, I don't eat cheeseburgers and... I don't eat pork, but my partner who was raised Catholic, she gets a huge ham every Thanksgiving that lives in my fridge. Oh, I saw the line there, actually. (laughs) For a couple (laughs) of days. Like the first time I had to take a picture in my fridge and text it to my parents, you know, who grew up in the conservative movement. And I was like, How did this happen? (laughs) Please tell me you still love me. And they're like, we still love you. And we're mostly vegetarian in my house anyway. So like the whole issue about meat and milk, not relevant. So
1: Mm -hmm. the meat and milk thing doesn't, I feel like unless I'm having like a chicken parm, which is once every six months when I'm in New York, like it doesn't intersect that much for me. Yeah. Because, I mean, I'm also lactose mm-hmm. intolerant, so I don't oh. really eat much dairy. Oh, but...
0: you have fussy Jewish intestine? I'm so sorry. Oh,
2: yeah. Yes, sorry. Oh, Big time.
1: It's, the it's, like, the most
2: Jewish thing about me, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> <Same>.
1: Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm Sometimes Listen, if I'm staying home on a Friday night, fine. I'll eat the ice cream. Because I just need to be gonna careful. Because
0: smell your immediate <laughs> surroundings.
1: <laughs> it's fine. Yeah. So, it's, like, the second I get in the car, it's, like,
0: Yeah. Not good.
1: <laughs> what have I done?
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: anyway.
2: <laughs> Anywho.
0: Flushed. Whew, okay.
2: <laughs> At my office. What is your go-to bagel order? Assuming you eat bagels.
0: Um, sesame toasted with cream cheese and lox. Yeah,
1: that is a classic answer.
0: Yeah, no I'm, one can I'm complain classic-y. about that. Z. I'm so boring, but
1: there it is. Listen, it's not boring. It's delicious. It's, it would be boring if you were like plain bagel with butter. I'd be like,
0: that's mm, probably no. I don't do the everything bagel or like chocolate bagels or blueberry bagels. Mm-hmm. I think those are like it's just not my jam. I, yeah.
1: I love a sesame bagel as well. Mm. Me too. Yep. I love that Can't go wrong sesame. I don't like halva though.
2: <gasps> Wait,
0: what did you just say? She doesn't like. Halva. I don't like halva. Uh, oh i do i do too i could smear that all over my body and be
1: really happy <laughs> literally the same I, I don't think anyone else in my family likes it though oh, I my love grandpa it. liked it but he's dead mm. oh, and, um, oh, i love it i i, I <laughs> it <laughs> yes. really like it mm, it's, it's still, so good. like nutty and good
0: Ooh, yeah plus it. there's um at the shook in jerusalem like the main outdoor market there's mm-hmm. like one stand that is all halva and like pistachio halva Budge halva, like all these different flavors. And every time I go to Jerusalem, which hasn't been lately because COVID, it's like a pilgrimage. Like I have to go to the halva store and just like (sighs) buy a ton and bring it home in my suitcase so that I have like a three month supply.
1: Okay. Do you think the show closed at all? I mean, during COVID, and is it back open? Like, probably, right? They're all vaccinated in Israel.
0: Yeah, I I mean, I've seen photos on the NYT that, you know, people are shopping. And yeah, I think it was also open during COVID because people need to eat. Interesting.
2: Yeah, I mean, essential business. Yeah, it is. That
1: makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And it's outdoors, so that's nice, too. But yeah, do you think we did it? I think we did a, we had an awesome conversation. Yeah, I I feel like we covered a lot of bases. Great.
2: Thanks for joining us, Rabbi Karen. You can follow Judaism Your Way on Instagram at JudaismYourWay. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or listen for free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate and review us and even leave a comment if you're feeling up to it. If you want to support our show financially, go to our Anchor page and click the support button. Follow us on Insta at PrayForUsPod. And if you feel like it, send us a note at PrayForUsPod at gmail.com. Shabbat Shalom.
1: This podcast has been mastered and mixed by the one and only Josh Fisher. We love you, Josh.